Welcome to the Paranormal Pendle podcast, coming to you from the heart of Pendle Witch Country in the northwest of England. My name is Craig Bryant, author, investigator, and collector of stories. Join me as we take a journey into the paranormal, UFO sightings, cryptozoology, and big cats. This is the Paranormal Pendle podcast. Welcome to episode 13 of Paranormal Pendle, broadcasting to the Paranormal UK Radio Network at paukradio.com. My guest on this episode is Mandy Paul, who is a remote viewer from uh, Lancashire. So, hi Mandy, thanks very much for joining us. Um, Can you start by telling us a bit about yourself, please? Good evening, uh, Craig. Uh, Yeah, my name is Mandy Paul. I'm a healing medium and I'm a remote viewer. Basically, remote viewing is an extra sense of reception that we all actually have, but the strengths to practice. Um, I have a a little village called Chapman near Kitherow, and I have a little ice cream shop called Hudson's that has been serving the public now for over 108 years. And yes, I'm aging well. So. Yeah, the, the shop, like you say, has, has been there for such a long time and it's served many a generation. And I felt that this has been my training ground. Okay, cool. Now, before we get into the, the remote viewing, I, I believe that um, you have uh, a visitor to the shop. Can you can you tell me a bit, yes. bit about, um, about Sarah, as she's called? Yeah, now Sarah Hudson bought the shop in 1913 as a butcher's with her husband, Clifford. Um, Before then, there's there's obviously lots of different parts what the shop was before then, but she bought the shop in 1913 and that's what we started to do. Over the period of time, they had four children and um, they decided to devise the ice cream in 1938 for her youngest daughter, Barbara. Because it were birthday sometime beginning of July of 1938, they made the ice cream. And at the time, the school was directly outside the shop. There was a little circle where the actual school was before they built the A59. And that's where the school doors opened. They ran across the road, rushed into the shop. And Sarah Hudson, Mrs Hudson, had made this ice cream for Barbara's birthday. Obviously, the ice cream was so popular, the kids said, Mrs Hudson, are you going to make the ice cream anymore? I'll make some tomorrow. So she started making it just on a Saturday and a Sunday for a, quite a while, actually, so probably a few, a few months, maybe a couple of years. And then the war broke out in 39, so after cease trading. So in 1947, this is when the actual ice cream recipe follows on from then, that she built the dairy at the back of the shop, which is still here today and still used in the same way. I'll have to show you that, Craig, at some point. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so the, the thing is with the dairy there, it's all handmade, it's all done by hand, and it takes about 10 hours to make. So it's all fresh produce, local milk, local eggs, and so forth. So she made the ice cream uh, in 1947 in a purpose-built dairy. And from so obviously it's 74 years later, the ice cream still made it in this little shop, which is an old toll house actually, that was built in 1719. And um, sorry, 1739. And um, so obviously it's coming up to nearly 300 years of age. So uh, in 1984, sadly, Sarah passed away at her sister's funeral in the church. She had an heart attack in the church at her sister's funeral and died on, on that day. 
So obviously, as time had gone on, they've sold the shop to a couple who had it briefly. And then my parents, my husband's parents, took it over in 88. And then I took it over in 99. Okay. So since that, so the thing as well with this shop, it's never really been empty. It's always had somebody here. Um, and obviously, they never had holidays in them times. They just used to have lit days out here, there and everywhere. Anyway, one October, it were October 2002, I remember it plainly. We decided to go on holiday with my two children and my husband, and we, we went away for one week. We came back, and do you know, the shop felt different. There were a different atmosphere to it. And obviously, we went to bed that night. And because the shop is like a 50p shape, it's got quite a quirky shape of a room, really. It's a bit like being in a lighthouse. It's got that kind of shape to it. Yeah. And um, so I was laying in bed, went to sleep, and I woke up in the middle of the night. But it's as though a bright light had been shone as though the, the daybreak was coming. And as I looked to my right, I looked in the doorway, and there's this lady standing there waving at me. Now, the, the mysterious thing about the hand that were waving, the hand looked really huge. And the image on the face was quite sunken. And she had this brown corduroy coat on with blue embroidery up the side of the zip and over the hood. And the light behind her was extremely bright. And she was just waving. And I just was fixated looking at it. It must have been 30 seconds plus. And then she just disappeared. So I woke my husband up and I said, you never guess what I've just seen. I've just seen a lady stood in the doorway. I didn't recognise the lady. It wasn't any of my family. So my husband said, you're seeing things. Because he's actually never seen spirit consciousness where of course whatever you want to call it where I have many times so I said to him anyway we went back to sleep the night after he was facing the other way and for some reason he woke up and he looked at the clock at the side of the bed which is digital which it used to be digital clocks then and it said that it said all three or eight so it were eight minutes past three in the morning he turned over looked at the door and she's there again waving at him the same light the same hand the same what she was wearing. He only could see her above her knees and over, and that was it. Now, bearing in mind, he'd never actually seen spirit or a ghost. So he woke me up, and he couldn't even speak. He was that scared. I saw her, I said, there you go. She's come to see you too. So we just decided to go on a quest to find out who this lady was. Anyway, we did a bit of research. We found out that the shop's built on ley lines, and that doorway there is the entrance of the ley line which will explain quite a lot. We then did a little bit of um, more research to find out who this lady was. And just up the road was a gentleman called Gordon, which was called, he was called Gordon Pye, and that was his grandmother. And his father was Gordon, uh, Jim Pye, so I asked him if any pictures of his mother, because I knew she'd passed away. He said, I'll show you a picture. So he fetched his picture into the shop and it wasn't the ghost. I said, have you got any pictures of your mother-in-law? And they didn't have any pictures of the mother-in-law. It's just one of those things. So I says, oh, I'm a bit of a dead end, really. And I just tried to describe it to him. He says, oh, I don't recognise that. So we left it at that. Two months later, I'm in a shop in Clitheroe in my haircut. And this lady sat in the chair outside of me. Looks very familiar. And I thought to myself, she's very familiar. I feel like I know this lady. So I said to the, the hairdresser, don't you know who this lady is? And I said, no, I said, she's called Anne Musson. Anne says, oh, I don't know who this lady is. It turns out that Anne Musson is the niece of the ghost of Sarah Hudson. Wow. And I said to her, have you got any pictures of her? She says, I have, but you're only a child. So a couple of weeks later, she gets a photocopy of this family photo and she fetches this picture in. 
No word of a lie, I knew who she was before she pointed her out to me. And the remarkable resemblance of my daughter also, which was also unique too at that time. So this picture, she's actually 13 in the picture, and she's there with three, uh, five of her other siblings, which is two girls and three boys. So I said, oh my gosh, so I decided to put it in a frame and put it on the landing. And at the time, we used to have an old piano that we'd been given, and we put it on top of the piano. Well, things went from bad to worse. This spirit or this ghost decided that she was going to take up residence back into her old house, and it got quite uh, heated at times where the children would say, Mum, you know, the children at the time was only, what, 10 and 8. Mum, there's somebody upstairs. Have you just come upstairs? No. And downstairs. Well, somebody's just come upstairs. I can hear them. So I used to go upstairs and I say, well, there's nobody here. She said, well, there was. Well, somebody walked upstairs. Anyway, a couple of weeks had passed, maybe a month or so. Anyway, dogs on top at landing, barking at somebody on the landing. So I said, are you girls up there? And they said, no. I said, to girls, are you up there? There were no answer. I thought they must be either watching telly or have earphones on, I don't know at the time. So I decided to come upstairs and the dog were barking at the doorway, the doorway where we actually saw her. And children was in the bedroom, they were listening to me, didn't hear the dog. So I said to myself, I said, there's some definite, I need to have a lady that comes in, I need somebody to come and see what's going on here. So I invited this investigator into my home. And she was a lovely lady from Clitheroe, but I can't remember her name. So she came and she said, yes, there is a lady here. She just told me her name, Sarah. Wow. And then she also told me when we went down the stairs that the gentleman's a gentleman that sits on a Champs-Élysées in the living room under the window called Clifford. Wow. Then I knew wow. that a witch actually was Sarah's husband. Now he died of emphysema and he died before her. So then I thought, well, clearly, so she says, what, this is what we have to do. So we, she did it's a bit of a ritual type of thing, what we had to say and so forth. And we did, we did what she said, but they didn't stop there. She went, this lady, and Sarah thought, I'm sorry, but it's my house, I'm stepping here. So she used to just reside about, but she didn't make herself known as much. Sometimes children would be having a tea in the kitchen and the kitchen door goes into the shop, yeah, from down the stairs and into the shop. And many a time they'll say, mum, I ain't shop. Oh, Sarah's gone into the shop. We're going to the shop, there's nobody there. Bearing in mind, Sarah used to stand in that shop when she, the doorbell used to go. She'd stand in the shop, cut some meat from the butchered side and then walk back upstairs because the front of the, the bedroom or the front of the house was her quarters and at the back was her daughter's quarters because that's how they used to live. And the front room was the parlour they only used on Sundays. So this is how it, 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 it continued. And then over the period of time, members of my staff have seen her in the cellar Oh. And just recently, in the past six months, a member of staff went down the stairs to get something out of the freezer. And as she's looking into the freezer, she could hear something behind her, but she thought, oh, it might be a dog that's come down the stairs to see her because we have a dog. Hmm. But when she turned around, Sarah stood fully clothed, looking at her, asking where I am. Wow. She just stood there and she said, she's upstairs. <laughs> and she she's only 19. She's absolutely petrified. This is broad daylight. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of a light in the cellar, and I do know there's, a, there's two parts to the cellar. There's a big part of the cellar, which is below the shop, and then there's another little cellar. I do know in that little cellar there that Sarah's brother used to help make coffins in there, and they used to use the cellar for the bodies before they buried them in the cellar. This is going back quite a while now, maybe 100 years or so. So she saw her at the bottom. She said, Mandy's upstairs, and do you know she won't go down in the cellar no more? 
And then about 10 years ago, another member of staff went down the stairs and saw a gentleman cross the bottom of the stairs into the little cellar, which was George, which was Sarah's brother. So we've not only got Sarah, we have her brother George here too. Anyway, just recently, this uh, Gordon Pye has passed away last, in the past two weeks. And I was stopping at a friend's dog sitting on your street, would you believe, Craig? Looking after Roxy. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah, yeah. I was stopping over the three nights just to look after while they went away. Anyways, I thought Gordon Pye died on the Monday because Tuesday evening he paid a visit to me in that house. Yes. Wow. But then I found wow. out he died on Tuesday. Oh, that's interesting. And then just recently, which is in the past two days, yeah. the picture that we have of Sarah, not the big one, this is another little picture that we have that was given when we had the anniversary in 2013, which was obviously was 100 years old that they took the shop on. Yeah. And yeah. it's a picture of Sarah as an elderly lady with her sister. And it was actually a dropped on the floor in the doorway just below where the, the, the same of the opening of the uh, rail lines. And it happened twice. The picture fell in the same place twice. Wow. So I know she's back. <laughs> Well, it's, it's interesting you should mention ley lines because I've done a bit of research into um, ley lines around here. Um, I had no idea that one or two, in fact, obviously will, will uh, cross um, at the front of your shop, but that, that is really interesting. You'll probably know, actually, that the pub across the road, um, the Black Bull, was where they used to have the morgue. So I suppose it wasn't that far to take them. Well, they'd, they'd obviously take the coffin across. I had no idea that, that coffins were made um, on your premises. But what I can say is that I have sampled your ice cream on numerous occasions, and it is fantastic. <laughs> it is the best ice cream I have ever had. Um, and you know as well as I do that James, my son, loves it as well. So that's that is really interesting. So she's still around then? Is Sarah, she's still... still around. She's made herself present in the past two or three days. Clearly, she knows I'm talking about her. Yeah, well... So she must have known that already. For her to be the picture to fall off twice in the same place yeah. is unbelievable. It is. It's not a coincidence, that is. There's definitely something going on. Uh, I'd love to come and have a look around then sometime. Um, that, you know, that that will be... I, had, I mean, I knew that the building was old. I knew that it used to be the tall house because, obviously, the road that runs through Chapman before the A59 was built was was the old road from Skipton to, I think it went to Bury. Um, in fact, if you talk to Sarah about it, she'll tell you about the guy that built it and he was called Blind Jack Metcalf, believe it or not. And he was blind and he was a road builder. So try and work that one out. Um, but no, that's that's really, really interesting. Can we can we talk about your remote viewing? Um, how... how uh, how that came about it says here how did i get involved in remote viewing yeah and what is it well remote viewing found me right i know it sounds a bit ironic but the story is uh from it's actually three years ago yet uh, last month that i uh, had a bunch of friends and we all used to go out together and this particular day night we were supposed to go to the proms in clitheroe castle anyways i couldn't go because i was at a wedding and a couple of other ladies decided to go and i couldn't go Anyway, it was lovely, lovely weather and it was really hot and um, I've been really busy in the shop and I just decided to sit outside at uh, 4.45 outside the shop. And as I'm sat down, Sarah, not Sarah, 
uh, a lady calls, um, I don't know if I can mention a name actually, if she would mind. I'm going to mention it anyway because it's already been published. Uh, so she, the, a lady came across, uh, what's she called now? I don't know. Helen. Helen, she's called. I won't go into second name, but she's called Helen. She came across the road with her dog and a friend. Anyway, I sat outside and I just said to her, did you go to the proms last night? She's no, she's, have you not seen my texts? I says, I've not seen any texts. I said, I've literally just sat down for the first time today. She says, well, it's Steph. I says, what's the matter? She says, it's been in that earthquake in Bali, Lombok. I said, I didn't even know there'd been an earthquake. She said, well, she's, she's, she's in that earthquake. We don't know whether she's alive or whether she's dead. I'm not joking you, my heart sank. So I'd met her daughter briefly a couple of years earlier. She'd gone travelling with three friends. And what had happened to her is that she'd collapsed in a cafe in Bali obviously with dehydration and she was unwell. So this guy at this cafe said, well, take her to the hospital. And she'd been there 12 hours on a drip to rehydrate herself. Gone back to this cafe the day after, that's when her mum was on the phone to her. What had happened, before we go into that, I'll tell you what, coming across the road first. She came across the road. She told me about what had happened. I gave her a hug and I just said, have you got anything of hers? She says, yes, I've got this little moonstone ring that she asked me to look after on my little finger. So she gave me this ring, I put it into my left hand and it took me to Bali. The energy of that ring had took me to Bali. I could see her, I could feel her. I knew where she was, who she was with, what she was wearing, where she was at. I could see it like I can see you now. It was clear as a bell. She was on the, up on the hillside. She, there was pine trees that were bare at the bottom. There was a drop off at the side. She would be about 20 people. She had flip flops on and she had sunglasses on, but she was extremely hot because obviously she'd been running but also because of the dehydration. So literally what had happened with her, she, like I say, she was supposed to travel with three friends and for two years and they were going to go to Australia. That particular time, she was supposed to catch the flight at one o'clock Lombok time with two friends. She would have missed the earthquake, but they got on the plane and she stayed. So she rings the mum to say to her that she's stopping in this cafe and this guy's looking after her until she's well enough to fly. There was a lot of concern at that time because Helen knew that there were a lot of trafficking in that area and it was very, it was very vulnerable. So anyway, she's on the phone to her, the earthquake struck, so all telecommunications went down. Then she decided they had no choice but to run. So as she's leaving the cafe and all the buildings around her are all dropping, she's running up this road and she's exhausted. This guy threw her on the back of his bike, his motorbike, and sets off up to the hills because somebody shouted tsunami. So you can imagine the fear. She's 26 years of age. She's running for her life. She can't run for her life because she's exhausted. She gets to the top of this hill and they all stop on this hillside. There's no sanitation. There's no water. There's absolutely nothing. And at that point, she was obviously exhausted. So her mum was frantic. She couldn't get in touch with her. The politicians got involved, the MPs, the consulate, to try and get information from her. No communications. So I just said to her, I said, she's all right, she's fine. I know where she is, I can see her. She looked at me in disarray as I'll say, I'm, I'm not sure. A friend said, if she thinks she's alive, she's alive. Big responsibility for me, obviously being a medium, big responsibility for me, but also the fact that this lady was a police officer. So I could have been arrested, one of those. Mm -hmm. So we sit down, let's have a cup of tea. And just look, trust me, she's fine. I can see her, she's all right. So we had a cup of tea and a chat and blah, 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 and she left. She hadn't slept for two nights, so you can imagine that. As she finally gets in touch with her daughter, 15 hours later, everything that I've just told you is what her daughter said happened at the time that it happened here. So it was five o'clock English time, 
11 o'clock long box time. No time and space in between, but 12,000 miles. Wow. So as you say about what is remote viewing, remote viewing is literally finding a needle in the air stack. Okay. It takes, it's basically a discipline of the mind. And as, as a gentleman called Joe McGonigal, who is a number one remote viewer on the planet, unfortunate for me, I had an opportunity to work with him a couple of years ago. He was stating that when you see it, you know it. Yes. Now, in this country, they call it clairvoyance and you think of crystal balls and you think of, well, they can see into the future or they can see into the past or the future, but it's not always accurate. OK, it's an inkling that they have, but obviously the strength, the practice. When you do remote viewing, it's a discipline and it's accurate. So when you get a target, you know it. Yeah. And it's it's literally the needle in the haystack, like the finding of Steph in that earthquake 12,000 miles away. At that time, I had no idea it was remote viewing until a friend of mine from America told me so. Then they put me in touch with various other people on the same kind of discipline. There was lots of people studying it. And basically what comes from your subconscious mind comes consciously. Yeah. So you not only see, you feel it, taste it, sense it. And it's absolute, basically extrasensory perception. Now, there's been lots of research on this at the Stanford Research Institute. You might have heard of the Stargate project that was put forward for the military, the US military. Fortunate for me, I'm involved with some of those men as we speak. I've done an interview with one, I've worked with one of them, but I'm in contact with another. And, and the discipline of that, it's, it's a unique discipline and it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. But it also depends upon your strengths or the strengths of the practice. What they work upon is coordinates, whereas I probably went on feelings and seeing, which is the, the seeing, remote viewing is basically you're remotely viewing a place, an object or a person. Yeah. The Russians started it and then obviously the Americas did it. And then now it's gone to China because they wanted to know about it also. So when you think about remote viewing, you think, well, how do you start this? What do you do to do this? Is it the fact that I held that ring that I had the energy on? Not always necessarily. One time I was in, um, I were in Santa Fe, New Mexico, with a bunch of friends about two years ago. And I was there with a New York Times journalist. And she says, well, if you can find her, you need to help me find my friend. I says, she's not, she's not just a friend, she's a client also. And um, I have some therapy with this lady. I've sent her emails, sent her phone calls. I've tried everything with her. I can't get seem to find out where she is. She's dropped off the face of the earth. So I'm sat in a car on the Route 66, heading up to this Indian festival feast day in the mountains there. She just says, can I help me find her? I says, I'll, I'll give it a go. So she told me her name and she also said that um, she's a friend. Her sister is a famous Russian pianist. I couldn't even pronounce the second name, but it was something with off on the end. So I says, right, so I sat there in this car and I'm, I'm just jotting down a few things. And then I had this feeling that you're in New Jersey. I've never even been to New Jersey, but that's what I got. I also got 38 Brown Street, which I found really quite unusual to have a street in a city like that. And then I got this feeling in my head, back of my left ear, like some kind of tumour or some kind of blow to the head. So I wrote all this down and gave it to her. Two weeks later, I'm back at home. I get this email. Oh, my God, you're not going to believe this. But everything you said was right. So she said to me, she said, yes, at the time you said, 
on that road when we were traveling, she was in New Jersey. She also lived at 38 Brown Street. By this time, her chin's on my chest and like, wow, that just blew me away. She says, and the third thing why she'd not got in touch with me is because she was in the hospital recovering from a tumour they removed down behind her left ear. And she's like, I just can't. She just sat there and she just paused, just loads of shows and loads of pauses on this email thinking, how and why is that possible? So when you think about it, there's different remote viewing for different aspects. You know, you've got associate remote viewing, control remote viewing, which is what I did. Associate remote viewing is kind of win the lottery or gambling or all that kind of thing. If you want to get into that kind of feeling of to doing. And we all have this initiate ability to do so because it's we're born with it. Yeah, we would call it instinct. Yeah, but there's literally the strength, the practice. That's all I can say. But the fact is, I got the opportunity. I did a, an experiment. Not many people know this, but I did an experiment with a friend of mine. Well, she's not a friend. I met her once, and she's from Finland. And what it was, she uh, was in uh, the Monroe Institute in West Virginia, where Joe McGonigal does his training exercises there. He, he married uh, uh, Bob Monroe's daughter. And he... Um, the only way I was invited to go to work with him is because Minna was my friend, Minna, she was in the Monroe Institute in February and I obviously was in the UK. So we decided to do an experiment. So while she was in the West Virginia, she had an EEG placed upon on her head, which actually probes in America. It's different here. They put a, a silly skull cap on in this country. But there they have probes. So she was sat there and I was sat here. So the time o'clock, time was 10 o'clock in West Virginia, four o'clock English time. So she had to view what I was looking at and I had to view what she was looking at. She thought I was drinking tea, eating cake, like the British do and read a book, but I wasn't. I was just looking at a plant that were abstract. I thought she might have got some imagery from that. Maybe she could tell me what she could see or maybe she could draw what she could see, but, but there were none of that. What I was able to do was to see the image of the room where she was sat, right down to where the windows, the doors, the curtains, the colour of the curtains, the crystal that's in the middle of the room, the lectern to the right. There were people in a half moon. I knew what sex they was, where they were sat, what was inside of her, to a T. And by this point, this graph was going absolutely, you can imagine, um, normally on a graph, it doesn't start, till it starts one to 10. When it gets to five, that's when it starts to kick in for the frequency. It already kicked in before one had started. So that's due to the fact that I've been meditating for over 25 years, yeah, which is, does help remote viewing because you're tapping into universal consciousness and obviously um, what I do with readings and so forth. So the thing with that, this lady said then to me, you need to get this lady here on Joe McGonagall's course. So we, there was 21 people from around the world that were able to go on this course and obviously there was a criteria to cover you have to fill in lots of documentation and, and, and such and get references and things. So off I went to West Virginia uh, in 2019. I had no idea what I was letting myself in for, to be honest, because it was six 10-hour intensive days. The training that he had when he was on the Stargate project was exactly the same training as what we had. It took me three months to work out what I'd done in them six days. That's how intense it was. So not only did we have to understand what remote viewing actually is, where it actually comes from and how to apply it to everyday life, which is quite, um, 
it's challenging. I would definitely call it challenging. It's not boring, but it's very challenging. So we had all sorts of tasks to do and things to find. And it were all not, it wasn't anything serious. There were not many people to find. It wasn't, it were mainly just to exercise our subconscious mind and what we're capable of basically as a human being. So he gave us all these exercises to do, and this is what we did. So obviously the there's there were um, I can explain it. The ones that were like say out of the 21, there were five that were able to get first class to call them the stults. And uh, there were only five that were able to do that. Unfortunately for me, I was one of the five. Now, when you ask yourself, why is that? It's because, like I said, again, it's the strength of practice. But sometimes you don't know what the practice is. Now I know what the practice is, but I didn't know then. So I found that remote viewing found me. So since then, I've been doing training all the time with other people around the world and doing lots of remote views and asking what they see and don't see and so forth. And I've been obviously been invited to, like I say, to lecture, or should I say, to had a talk with a guy called uh, Major Paul Smith, PhD. He was in the military also. We've got a YouTube channel uh, talking about that on Spirit TV. Um, it's, a, it's very interesting, but it's it very in-depth on how and why remote viewing is. Is remote viewing out of body? Is remote viewing by location? Is it teleportation? But we're all working on understanding how. For me, I feel it's by location for your etheric cell to travel to that destination to retrieve that information. Yeah? He seems to think it's your consciousness, but your consciousness has to be attached to something to travel. Mm. That's what I felt. So there's lots of questions and about it and talking about it, how and why it works. I was going to ask you, actually, whether you felt like you were physically moving to another place or whether it was more your consciousness that was that was moving. I myself feel like I travel to that place. Okay. Yeah. The other thing as well is since then, I do something called OBEF. It's an out, I'm an out-of-body experience facilitator. I facilitate you to have an out-of-body, induced out-of-body experience, but conscious, not unconscious. Right. When you, when you sleep at night, you automatically come out of your body, but you accept it because you're asleep. You're mm. in delta state of consciousness, which is fast asleep, yeah? So yeah. you allow yourself to come out of your body and travel where you want to travel to. So is, is that where dreams come into it, then? Become your reality, but it's whether you remember what your dream was. Right. But in this brief, with the fact of the frequency, obviously I've, had, I've been tested in America, been tested in, in Holland and in London for the frequency. It's equivalent to a Buddhist monk's, hence the 25 years experience. You might have heard of zero point energy. I'm able to reach zero point energy and travel anywhere on the planet at any given one time, but I can carry your consciousness with mine so you can experience your own. Right. That, that sounds amazing. <laughs> You know, some said the amount of people that have given me testimonials from it, and this is what this gentleman wants to do in Arizona. He wants to do a documentary on this on Prime because there's nobody else that's doing that. No. There is something along with that, which I probably need to show you before I can tell you about. There was a CIA document released in 1983 talking about this experience, but it was only about one person being able to come out, whereas I can carry yours with mine because of the frequency I'm on already. And is it is it dangerous to do that? Is it no, not at all. It's not dangerous. The thing is with it, it's not your time. You cut. You see, when you have this out of body, it's just recently. Uh, I won't mention too much names, but he's a Hollywood actor. 
and he had this experience and it blew him away. He was in Italy at the time and he said he felt like he was in a box. He just he just felt really enclosed and it just didn't feel, you know, it was his mum that put me in touch with him because I know his mother. So he had this experience and we, I took him out of his physical vessel. We went to Venice Beach. I've never even been to Venice Beach and I believe it's in California somewhere. And uh, he met up with his father and his brother who have passed away because he had obviously things to talk to them about. This is what this outer body does. It allows you to have conversations with your family who have passed away to find out what you needed to know from them and what you have to talk about. So I'm there with you, but I don't listen in into the conversation because it's not my family, it's yours. So I'm literally about 10 feet away, okay? okay. So then you have this experience. They also said to him when we were in Venice Beach, did you see the hut that was closed? He, he said, yeah, no, I said, did you see the grey hut? He said, yes, he said, but it was closed. So don't you worry, it will open. Four days after that experience, his life changed dramatically. He flew back home to America and he's just, he's never been so busy. Absolutely blew him away. He's just on the process at the moment to write a testimonial so I can put it onto my website. So is it a sort of, and, and forgive me if I'm getting the wrong end of the stick here, because I, I, I really, what you're telling me is completely blowing my mind and, and it, I, I find it incredible and fascinating and just unbelievable uh, in a good way. Is it, is it, is it a sort of hypnosis then when you're if let's say for instance that you wanted to or i wanted you to take my consciousness somewhere else is it is it done via hypnosis initially or no no you're shaking your head no no it's not no. So you're conscious of the experience right yeah? you're conscious of spirit. when you're having hypnosis you're not conscious you're unconscious of the experience this is why they put you on hypnosis in the first instance yes so you're not actually aware okay yeah. You're not in hypnosis. You're consciously aware of the experience. You know where you've been, who you met. Yeah. You tell me straight off what happened, where we went, what we did. Yeah. It's not, you're conscious of it. You're not asleep. Okay. And so many people say to me, will I come back in my body? I said, well, of course you will. Now they call it, I call it, I'm stepping out, slipping out or popping out. Yeah. On this document that I've found now with the CIA, which has literally blown my mind because it's explained why I'm able to do this is that people will pop out, yeah? Hmm. And people say, but basically, I'm giving you an experience where it's like to pass away, but without the pain. Right. Yeah? Or, because that's what people people are more af afraid of, in my feeling, is they're more af not afraid of dying, but it's afraid of how they are going to die. Hmm. And you must have heard of people with near-death experiences. Yeah. Yes? Yeah. I've, I've had three near-death experiences in my time. Okay. Uh, one when I was 13, one and two in my 40s. Okay. So when I think about those, yeah, this is giving you an opportunity to have an um, an experience of dying, but without the pain. So, for example, this gentleman in Italy, um, he'd had um, he'd been in a car accident with his wife, and his seven-year-old son was in the back. Now his seven-year-old son was killed instantly in this car accident, and they was all right. Okay, so you can imagine how he felt, and. Um, a gentleman from Florida put me in touch with this gentleman and says, because I think you'll be able to help him. Because this gentleman had this experience. So he says, right. So I sat with this gentleman from Italy and he works in a hospital and he's a surgeon. Okay. So I, I said to him, I says, what are we going to do? So when I was taking him out of his body, he was, could feel himself coming out of his body, but he, was, he, he pulled himself back because he was concerned what his son would think of him. 
because he wanted to apologise and there was all sorts of emotions that he wanted to say. So he, he, he decided not to and he told me afterwards, he said, we'll leave it for two weeks and then we'll do it again. The second time, he not only came out of his body to meet his son on the beach, yeah, he met his father also, who were in spirit. So he got the opportunity to meet the both of them together. And that gave him so much peace and comfort. And when his son is fine, he was looking at him and building sandcastles and he was talking to him through his thoughts. And it just, it just felt like nothing had changed. When he came back into his body, I just had tears coming down his face. That's all he had. And um, he said, I've never, ever had anything like that, ever. And he gave me a testimonial also. It just blew him away. Um, the only thing I can, uh, the experience of what most people have said in this experience that they've had is the film Contact. I don't know if you've ever watched the film Contact with Jodie Foster. Yeah. When she meets the father on that beach. Yeah. This is the same experience that these people have been having. Okay. But places that I have no idea and never been to. No. So the, this is something then that's been used by the military. Is, is it? Is it something you can talk about or? I need to show you the documentation, really. Yeah. Um, you the because you can actually get the documentation because they're all free for everyone to watch. There's thousands that's been released uh, that's uh, declassified. Um, but the ones that are declassified have got names covered up in black, so you can't see who the, the people yeah. are, which I know who the people are now. Yeah. Uh, but this other document that I found, which somebody sent me to it and said, this is what I think is happening when you give these out of bodies, blew me away literally when I read it. It's about six, seven pages long, both, both sides, and it's really interesting. So Maybe, know, that's, another, maybe that's another podcast. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see that. Um... You mentioned uh, near-death experiences at the, well, you said you'd had three. Um, would you be able to describe one of them, maybe, or more I'll than describe one? the one when I was 13. Um, for me, I, I, was, I used to struggle to get up for work, uh, get up for school. I don't know what it was. My parents left home at seven, and I thought, you know, I'll just go back to bed like you did as a teenager. Yeah, I've got a 14-year-old downstairs that does that. <laughs> yeah, so I I think it's just that you're going through this growing. I just don't know. It was just one of those things. And obviously, if you got three late marks in a week at school, you used to get detention. So I always used to get two, never three. <laughs> so I worked it out quite well. So this particular day, the school bus parked across the, the road from the school. Bearing in mind, this road was big enough for like two lanes and either side, maybe a dual carriageway. And uh, I got off the bus and I don't know what possessed me to walk in front of the bus because I always used to wait till it passed, yeah? But this time I walked out of the front of the bus. Don't know why, I just did. I must have been thinking of something else, I do not know. But next thing I know, I see this lorry and it's coming right at me and I froze. Mm. And I just stood there frozen. Next, I opened my eyes, the next thing, I'm looking back at myself from the other side of the road in front of this lorry. And I'm thinking, how can I be stood at this side of the road when I've not crossed the road? I knew I had crossed the road, but I, I opened my eyes and I was facing back on myself from like the, the wide road. Could see my physical body outside in the front of the bus at the lorry and the bus driver waving his hands. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get hit by that lorry. That lorry's going to hit me. That's why I'm probably here. I probably died. I felt like I'd actually, I don't know what I felt at that time. I just thought, well, why am I here? And then all of a sudden, within about, it seemed like ages, seemed like I'd been there 10, 15 minutes, but all I could hear was a colourful language coming from the bus driver. 
Yeah. Which then I found myself back in that body in front of the wagon, which missed me about inches. Right. And the bus driver's shouting colourful language out of the window that fetched me back into my physical body. And then I walked across the road and then I sat down because I thought to myself, I've been here before. I've sat on, I've stood on this pavement before and saw that happening. So I don't know, obviously at that point in my life, things really escalated. That's mm. when I started to see a lot more of people who've passed away, right. um, experienced quite a lot of um, experiences. One particular when I was, uh, I was 15, I was looking in my mirror in my bedroom and outside of me was a man smiling, which was my granddad. Now, bearing in mind, my granddad had never seen me. I'm youngest of six children mm. and my mum's father had died before any of her children was born. And my eldest brother was 21 years older than me, so it's going back some time. Yeah. And he was smiling back at me, so I thought, if he's smiling back at me, he must be stood outside of me. But when I looked outside of me, he wasn't there. Well, that were it. I slept with lights on for three or four weeks. Oh, petrified. I'm not surprised. But little did, well, this is it. At that time in your life as a child, well, I, you are really a child at 15. Yeah. It just were like, oh, I can't tell anybody about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't you didn't understand. So so the, 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 the experience you had with the bus and the lorry then, do you think that was sort of like turning a switch on for all, all these abilities that you've got and, and, and the ability to see people and, and, and everything else, do you think that's when it all started for you then? Do you think it was that episode um, that kicked it all off? Um, I don't know. I think that escalated it to a degree because I've always seen since I was small. Okay. Um, my first experience was when I was three, when a lady came up to me and the strangest thing about it, her attire wasn't from this time. She didn't look like, dressed like my mum was. Yeah. Yeah. And she just said she was my grandma because I'd never seen her my mum's mum. She died before I was born. And, I, and, I, and she said that, that she was my grandma. And I thought, who were you? You know, I didn't know who she was, but she just came to me like I'm talking to you. Yeah. And then I told my mum about it. She said, oh, you can't have seen her. It doesn't matter, you're right. And she just shunned it on. I thought, oh, we'll just carry on. And as I grew up, I used to say to my sisters that somebody would be on the street. And I said, oh, yeah. And they used to just say, they're all right. Yeah, it's fine. You know, they, they're older than me and they just said, just agreed with me. So I thought, well, if they can see it, it must be the norm. Then when I were about eight years of age, eight, nine years of age, my dad's mother passed away, but she was in the bed and she'd had a stroke. And the bizarrest thing is I could communicate with her easily. I knew what she wanted. I knew what she wanted to eat. I knew everything about her, but she couldn't speak. And they said, how do you know? So well, she's telling me. And I, I couldn't understand or why she was telling me, and I didn't understand how the communication was taking place, but it was. Anyway, she passed away, because I went this one day, and she weren't in there in the bed. She Obviously, I thought she was in hospital at eight or nine years old. You think, you know, that's what you think. Anyway, it's in this room, we're in this room with my cousin, and we knelt up at a table playing dominoes while up family kitchen, probably discussing the funeral. And then all of a sudden, the cupboard doors opened in the sideboard, and we looked at the sideboard, and we looked at each other, and then they closed again on their own. <laughs> <laughs> but, we, but we just accepted it because we just thought that was something normal yeah. but since then I've only found out in the past mm, 20, 25 years that my grandmother was a medium also in a local wow. church Okay. So, so I didn't know that. some of it's inherited then I don't know I don't know I don't, I don't know whether it was or, or it was a near death but I didn't have the near death you know but yeah. obviously my mum had me late in life 
that might have something to do with it because it must have been quite a traumatic time for somebody in the 40s to have a child in that time, you know. Oh, sure. uh, I don't know. Yeah, so I'm just wondering if that... It did escalate, I'll be honest with you, when I ever hit 13. Things yeah. really progressed at that point. And then um, I had another one when I was 42 on holiday. I um, was in Cape Verde on a holiday with my daughters and my husband. And we decided to go to the beach, like you do. We always want to go to see what the beach is like. Yeah. Bearing in mind, they call the, the uh, Cape Verde Isles the African Caribbean. I don't know if you've ever been. It's beautiful. Anyways, we decided to go to the beach. And there was a sign here. I saw it briefly. But at the side of it is this young man making necklaces with one leg. Now, he distracted me, really. And I, I could see him with this one leg. And he told him that he'd been collecting pearls or whatever. And a shark had took his leg off when he was young. I don't know if it were a true story or not, but you listen to it, don't you? Yeah. So then we get on to the beach and it, the sea is clear, crystal clear. And I thought I'm going to dive in like I always do, dive into the sea and start swimming. Girls are on the beach with, with, with a dad and I dive in, start swimming. It must have been about 20 yards out. And I felt this tug and I thought, oh my God, there's a shark in water. I'm looking around frantically thinking there's a shark in water. But they were, next thing I know, I'm at the bottom of this ocean the strangest thing is i'm at the bottom of this ocean i'm looking up and it must have been about maybe 13 foot deep maybe 14 foot deep maybe more it just for clear as a bell i don't know how deep it was and there was this shine this bright light shining in and i thought to myself at that point if i fight this whatever it is i'm i'm being down here for i felt like it maybe a rick curl or something like that i'm gonna die because it was powerful i'll just i'll just being pulled at bottom but the weirdest thing is, I was breathing underwater. I could blow, I was blowing bubbles, and it felt like I was, I don't know, I felt like I were a mermaid. I don't know what I thought. I just felt, I knew I couldn't fight this current. And I knew if I did, I would be dead. So I just let it, just went with the flow of it. Next thing, there was this bright light coming down. It was so warm on the body. I thought, oh, I could just stop here forever. It was just lovely. I just, just felt like, I don't know, it was just the wonderfulest feeling I've ever had. And the next thing I know, I'm on the side of the beach. I have no idea how I got from the bottom of that ocean to the side of the, the beach there next to the water. And all I could hear was this guy shouting, crazy lady. Mm. It's like God didn't even go in for me. And apparently I've dived in between two red flags. That's what the sign said, which I missed from, from looking at the guy to my right who had no leg. Yeah. But I felt I needed to do that to have this out-of-body experience. But I do remember having all the grazes on my back end from the cob, the, the gravel on the bottom. And two weeks prior to that, a guy died there for fighting the current, he drowned. Right. And I'm just wondering if he was the one there helping me. Very, very possibly. What do you think this bright light was then? I felt like it was going to take me. I just felt like I wanted to yeah. be with it. I didn't want to leave that actual light. It was just so warm, so... It was like, you know when you see sunbeds and you're laying out sunbed, I don't know if you have, but you're laying out sun and it's so bright and you've got to wear them little goggles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it, was, it, it encapsulated with my heat. I just felt really warm all the way around. And it, I felt so light. Mm. So I felt like obviously I'd had an out of body, obviously near death. Yeah, yeah. Well, the light was so bright and so warm, but I couldn't see anything. It was just so bright. But it didn't hurt my eyes, you know, like, it, it weren't like, like that bright, but it was bright enough not to squint. 
it, it was bizarre. I, I couldn't, I didn't squint at it. I just, I can see it now. Yeah. Plain as day. It just, it were about, it looked like a 10 foot wide beam that would just come in into the water right down to where I was. And it was bizarre because it, it were all lit up the sand around me. You know, it were, yeah. it were, it were under, unbelievable feeling. Lovely like, fit, but very warm, even like, though the sea. Yeah. Sorry. I'm going to say like a spotlight. Yeah, I suppose it was like that, really. But I didn't, I didn't, I just wanted to stay there and I could, I was blowing bubbles out of my mouth. That was the weirdest thing ever. Yeah. And I, I thought, I'm, I'm breathing. I must be, I must be an amphibian. So I know what I thought. But literally within seconds, I, I don't know how I got from there to the side of the beach, even to this day. It's a common theme, isn't it, that with near-death experiences, a bright light. People, people have different descriptions of it, but it's fundamentally a bright, a bright light, isn't it? Yeah, that's interesting. That so, just going back to um, to your remote viewing. Do you think the fact that where you live is obviously a very um, active, well, it's a very active shop, isn't it? Very active house where you live, and you mentioned that there's um, ley lines that cross on it, under it, over it, wherever they do. Um, do you think that helps to magnify your abilities or do you think it's probably it's probably a question you'd find difficult to answer i mean do, do you find that when you're in other places you've still got the same abilities or does it seem to be more concentrated when when you are at, at home in other places it's it's more heightened is it no, that's interesting when i were in new mexico it was heightened yeah. it felt heightened yeah um, and I know you're quite high up there anyways, hmm. and that's where the nuclear bomb were built, I don't know, but the fact is that when I'm not at home and I go to other places, it becomes heightened. Now, I'm just wondering if there, maybe this is the nest, I don't know where the energy centre is, hmm. I don't know. Um, but uh, the thing being with it is, like I say, when I was in New Mexico and I would drive it down on the Route 66, jotting down what I could see, it was natural as I'm talking to you to do so. Mm. So I feel some of it might maybe have to do with the property or the fact that I'm younger. I'm the, well, actually, it would have been a seventh trial because I lost a brother before me. So is it the seventh trial of the seventh, you know, when you hear about that? Yeah. Mum had me late in life. She must have had the ability. My grandmother had the ability. I don't know. Um, I, I feel that possibly the shop and the businesses of that has probably helped because I've been interacting with lots of people from all over the world, really. I don't know if that's helped. Or is it the fact that it's just the innate ability that I have the strength of that? Because like I said, I, I, I didn't find the remote viewing. It found me. And I felt like that might, must have been a turning point in my life that's, that's, that's drawn me more to that. Obviously, being a medium and under healer, I've done various Zooms. I've given various messages to many people from all over the world. Um, but there was something else there. It felt like that that wasn't what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I've had a, I have had people asking me to find the animals and I've done lots of stuff before that this article was published in the Psychic News. Mm. Um, it was only published for a reason. It's because the gentleman who looked after her daughter in the earthquake and who was going to look after her until she could well enough to fly yeah. was going to raise money for him because he lost everything. Right. Oh. But um, I, it, I wasn't, it wasn't my intention to be, to be published, and she wrote the article, right. so I had no no say really. <laughs> uh, since then, people asked me to find dogs that's missing. Um, just recently, a lady 
I dropped a cake off at her house because it was her daughter's birthday and she'd lost a credit card. She said, Mandy, can you help me find my credit card? I said, I can see it in something blue and white in your bedroom and it's fluffy. So she went up, she went upstairs looking around for something blue and white, and there it was, tucked in a dressing gown pocket with blue and white. And, and she knew she'd lost it, but she knew she didn't know where she'd lost it because she wouldn't cancel it. That's how it was for her. It was a dressing gown that she hadn't worn for a while, and there it was, unless somebody had found it on the floor and put it in the pocket to, for safekeeping. But she said, she said, oh gosh, I didn't think it would be able to do it so quick. I said, well, it just came to me. So you asked this, the thing is with the extrasensory perception, it was um, studied at the uh, Stanford Research Institute in California, and there's two physicists called Russell Targ and Hal Puntoff. Now they started doing the remote viewing and they were being paid by the government $20 million per year to find out how it works. Right. So they started to do the research. And they were just getting to the pinnacle of the research and the uh, government pulled the plug and took the money away. They said, no, no, we're really nearly there now. We're really at this, nearly getting to the pinnacle of it, the research. So what they did is they took the remote viewing skills to the Silver Stock Exchange and over a period of eight weeks made $180,000. Right. So the government thought, hang on a minute, <laughs> they clearly have something here because they needed to get it. Yeah. So they continued to fund it. And then it was taken to Fort Meade in West Virginia for the military to um, train various soldiers, military personnel to do this remote viewing. Yeah. Now, Joe McGonigal uh, is only his name as the number one remote viewer on the planet and was awarded a, a medal that's never been given to any man ever for his achievements with his remote viewing skills. He was a chief warrant officer at the time, and he's 76 years of age now, and he's the number one on the planet wow. for the work that we did. And I felt really privileged to be able to work with him cool. at the Monroe Institute yeah. for six days. And there was a real connection. It was just, it was just it was a fabulous week. Very competitive. Mm. I never thought it'd be competitive because I had no idea what I was letting myself in for. <laughs> and then while we are actually there, there was this, this particular exercise Joe had set for us, and we're all sat down, quite relaxed, and this whiteboard in the corner, me being me, put my hand up to a bit guinea pig. So I gets up and he gives me a blank piece of paper, and he says, give me this number, what do you see? So first of all, I drew an F, and I thought, no, that don't feel right. And then at the side, I drew like a shrub, a circle that looked like a shrub. And then I underlined it, because I, I felt like I was being drifted off onto something else. Then underneath, I, I drew this tunnel. It looked like a tunnel. And then there were a man at the end of it with an opening and blah, blah, blah. Then all of a sudden, this lady jumped up, screamed at everybody, well, screamed at me and said, that's advanced remote viewing. Right. So I just turned to her very calmly and said, I must be advanced then. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody looked at her in dismay. They said, well, why are you screaming out that? I had no idea what how advanced or not advanced that I was. Yeah. It was just an exercise that Joe had offered me to do, and I did it. So she was a bit upset, this lady, because she couldn't get that. But it all depends upon the strength, you see. So yeah. we're all individuals, and we're all at different strengths, yeah. and what we're good at and what we're not good at. Yeah. Say, for example, Craig, that you was good at cars, and you had lots of things about cars, yeah? Yeah. In your subconscious mind, you'll have lots of information about cars. 
Mm. Yeah. But if they're a remote view for a particular reason that they want the military wanted something that was mechanical, you might have a really good idea on how to draw that. Mm. For me, I know about cars also. Our two cars will look totally different, but they do the same purpose. Yeah. So so this is this is what it's all about, really. Literally, that whatever you put into your subconscious mind, whatever's in your subconscious mind comes out to your conscious mind when it's meant to do. So you mentioned before about being um, a medium and a healer as well. Um, and I feel another podcast coming on to talk about that, um, if that's okay with you. But just very quickly about the mediumship then. Do you go in and do um, investigations into uh, alleged haunted places uh, or is that is, is that not how you you work with the mediumship i've been invited uh before this pandemic to do a few programs with simon and a film guy that we were all setting up before the pandemic and then when it was hit it obviously was ceased um but we're hoping to get back into that to do investigations in possibly various spiritual churches around the country Okay, that's Simon Entwistle, isn't it, from Clitheroe, who uh, I interviewed for my first ever podcast. Um, and he's, he's an investigator and um, a tour guide, isn't he? And, and he's, uh, he, he does a lot, of, um, a lot of investigations as well. So. He's a fabulous historian. Um, yeah. When did the Most Haunted programme a few years ago? Um, obviously, that was a bit... I had a, a, a friend of mine, Derek Cora. All right. He and he and I was supposed to meet up um, just before the pandemic, and obviously before he passed away, sadly. Yeah. Uh, to discuss a f- another program with him, with Simon and a, a couple of other people, uh, because of his experience. Now, when he was in the most haunted, he felt like it was deterring away from what he was about, because mm. he was a fabulous medium. I met him a few times in the past. He's a lovely gentleman, but he was, um, put it this way, they, they exaggerated the findings and he didn't want it to be exaggerated. So what we decided upon ourselves to do live, it wasn't going to be recorded so they couldn't edit it, it was going to be live. Yeah, it so was, it, yeah, it was, it was, it was entertainment, wasn't it? Um, and yeah, there was, there was, um, he left under a bit of a cloud, didn't he? I think there was there was something unfortunate, and yeah, and he was very sad. He passed away. I had no idea that that you knew Derek Cora. Um, that's another subject I'd love to talk to you about because he was um, a wonderfully interesting guy, wasn't he? Very uh, flamboyant, lovely guy, and he he, he was very big character, big character. Yeah, a big character, but he, he he wasn't that big of a character in life. No, he was just Derek. You know, he wasn't. Um, TV and fame can affect people in different ways. Yeah. And um, you have to understand sometimes, though, that he couldn't be necessarily himself most of the time because of what he'd had to in the script, say in the script. And that's sometimes, scripts aren't always good to have because they don't portray the person and they don't portray the place that you're actually visiting. Mm. Whereas what we intended to do was to do what Derek, uh, not Derek did, but... Um, understand the concept of consciousness spirit as you call it i call it consciousness mm. i don't call it spirit um the reason being for the other is stuff that i've studied but 
um, because they had a script to follow, it had to be that way, otherwise it wouldn't have been entertainment for the public to see. Yeah. They never left you, they left you in cliffhangers and things like that, which to me is it wasn't true connection to spirit. And the also the other thing was we wanted to do it where it was live and you couldn't edit it. There were no editing taking place at all. And I do know lots of people do it on Facebook, but a lot of these people aren't necessarily mediums that are communicating either. No. So there's a difference with the mediumship also. The strength, again, is, is the practice. Yeah. But like I said, I've been meditating for 20 years plus. I also did Buddhist mantra for 15 years and I went to teach you. Okay. Well, that's well, going to be another podcast. That's, that's for another podcast. Um, yeah, I've, I've got a big long list of things that I need to talk to you about for, a, for another one now. Um, it's been a real eye-opener, actually, Mandy. I, I, I had no idea that... Um, I mean, we've obviously known each other for, for quite a while, haven't we? Living in the same village, um, people listening to the podcast won't, won't realise that we live probably about a quarter of a mile away from each other, if that. Um, and I had no idea that, that you had these abilities. Uh, you had no idea that I was interested in the par paranormal and, and various other things as well. Uh, so we've sort of just come together and, and, and set this up on the spur of the moment. And you've actually, you've really blown me away with, with what you've talked to me about. It's been, I hope people who've listened to this have been as, as gripped as I have, because it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very, very much indeed. I'm, I, I'm really grateful that you've, uh, that you've spoken to me. I will definitely come back to you. We'll definitely do another one. Um, and in the meantime, keep making that fantastic ice cream and I'll I'll pop, <laughs> I'll pop along this week and, uh, and see what, what new flavours you've got. Thank you, Mandy. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much for talking to me. You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you to Mandy for a really great episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And remember, you can check out my website at www.craigbryant.co.uk. Paranormal Pendle will return, and remember to keep watching The Shadows. <laughs> <laughs>